In his book, 365 Days, Dr. Ronald Glazer recalls his time as a medical doctor for the United States military during the height of the Vietnam War. I read this book years ago, and his description of treating a horribly burned patient has stuck with me for over 20 years. This is his story. Quote, Burns are a very special kind of wound, and no physician anywhere wants the responsibility of caring for them, not even for a little while. For starters, burns look disgusting, and the patients often die. The smell alone is sickening. The corpsman was standing on the helicopter pad. We got a burn victim, he said. Doesn't look too bad to me. Call the neurosurgeon, Dr. Edwards shouted back. Then he began to unwrap the gauze from around the patient's head. The boy was breathing. Other than that, he looked dead. Edwards pinched his neck, but there was no response. As he unwound the gauze, it became wet and then blood-soaked. Now he was down to the four-by-four surgical pads and finally to the wound itself. Carefully, he lifted up the last pack, and despite himself, he closed his eyes. He's 47% burn, the sergeant said, reading the cover sheet of the soldier's medical record. Took an AK round a little in front of the right eye, removed the right eye, traversed the left orbit, and came out near the left temple, apparently blowing out the left side of his head. It's going to be a very merry Christmas, Edwards mumbled to himself. A few minutes later, Edwards was directing the patient to surgery. We'll treat his burns in neurosurgery. Should I give him an IV? The corpsman asked. No, just set him up. I'm sorry it took so long to set one up. I couldn't find a vein. The boy was awake, nervously looking at the needle the corpsman had stuck into the back of his hand. Hi, Edward said. How do you feel? The soldier looked up at him. The skin on his face had been seared bright red, and all his hair and eyebrows and lashes were burned away. His face was a talking red melon. I know you're nervous, Edward said soothingly. Just try to relax. I'm the chief of the burn unit. I'll be your doctor for a while until you get better. As he pulled back the blanket, the soldier grimaced. His whole body was fighting for the Viet Cong. Every movement sent him on a roller coaster of pain. Sorry, said Edwards. The burns, red and raw, ran the whole charred length of the boy's body. Unconsciously, Edwards began adding up the percentages of burned area, tallying them in his mind. He suddenly realized what he was doing, and for a moment, as he stood there staring at the burns, he looked stricken. How did it happen? He asked gently. I, I was carrying detonators. I must have taken around in my rucksack. They just blew up, and then I was on fire. Tried to tear my gear off, but my hands, my hands. Edwards interrupted him. He had to get the kid David. David was his name, David Jensen. He was just 20 years old. He had to get David help fast. David, the first thing we're going to do is put you in a whirlpool bath to soak off your bandages and remove what dead skin we can. It's going to hurt. Yes, sir, David said, his voice wavering. You don't have to call me, sir, explained Edwards. Y yes, sir. Thank you, sir. About 30 minutes later, Edwards checked on David's surgery proceeding in the neurosurgery wing of the hospital. The patient was lying naked on the treatment table. There were blood-soaked clothes and bandages all over the floor. Dr. Kramer, the neurosurgeon, turned his head for a moment, looked at Edwards, and then went back to work. His frontal lobe's all torn up, Kramer said. I'm going to have to take him up to the operating room and save what I can. What do you think about these burns? Asked Kramer as the surgeon's fingers worked deep inside the half-shell of the boy's skull. 
In his heart, Edwards knew the case was hopeless. In his muscle memory, he knew it, like a sniper taking a shot without thinking. But his will, his value, screamed to help the boy, to help David. Don't worry about the burns. They're not that bad, Edwards said. The next day, Edwards found David in the burn unit, floating full length in one of the whirlpool baths, his head supported on a padded board to keep it above the waterline. A few of the dressings had already soaked off, and the medic was picking them out of the water. Are you okay? Edwards asked him. David nodded through clenched teeth. Each movement of the water was an amusement park ride, succinctly named Pain. David, Edwards said, we're going to debride you in a bit. It's when we take off all the dead skin. We're going to have to do it every day, a little bit at a time. That way it won't be as painful. We're going to put you in the whirlpool every day, and all the skin that is loose or is loosening is going to be removed. It has to be done. If we don't take it off, it just stays and decays, forming a place for bacteria to grow, and you'll get infected. That's what we want to avoid, because if the burns get infected, no new skin will form. It's going to hurt. And I'll give you something for the pain. I've been doing this a long time, David, and I know when it really hurts and when it doesn't. We're going to have to do this thing for a long time, and we don't want to make an addict out of you, so we're only going to use the pain medicine when we have to. David had been staring up at him this whole time. What was left of his lips were clamped tight against the pain of the water, scraping against his blistered skin. Yes, sir, he said, his voice trembling. David groaned as a corpsman picked up a large chunk of dead skin from his chest. He had to tug to get it off. David grimaced and groaned as the water and the corpsman worked him over. A second torture, a purgatory for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Suddenly David let out a scream and the scream echoing off the spotless tile pierced Edwards to his heart. His eyes clenched tight. The boy was fighting valiantly for control. Blood began oozing from the new patch of raw skin on his chest, and Edwards could see the tears rolling down his ripe strawberry red cheeks. It went on like that for days. David writhed in agony in the whirlpool. His burned skin literally pulled off him the way kids stretch out fresh caramel at state fairs. His skin was the white mozzarella cheese of a cheese stick fresh out of the oven, pulling into long, quivering tendrils of flesh. Edwards knew he probably wouldn't make it, but Edwards fought on to save him. That evening, in the bacteria lab, David's culture was bubbling with pure pseudomonas. The infection had set in. The next morning, they covered David's legs with skin grafted from dead bodies. He was literally wearing the skin from his own friends. After the surgery, Edwards visited David again. I was positive before I got burned, David told him. I'm telling you, you're going to be okay, Edwards assured him. I didn't even see it. I was just walking. It wasn't even the damn point, man. I swear to God, I didn't even hear it. Can you believe that? Can you believe that shit? He was getting loud. I couldn't even hear the damn bullet. It just happened so fast. Within three days, the cadaver grafts failed, and Edwards had to pull them off like the rest of the dying skin on David's body. David was shaking with rage when he saw Edwards again. I'm handling it, damn it. Then he turned to Edwards and said what every doctor dreads to hear. The words struck him like a wife saying she's leaving you for a better lover. I've been throwing up all day. I can't keep anything down. I'm not going to make it, am I? No, no, don't interrupt me. I know I'm not. That stuff you keep putting into my IV bottle. The other guys, the only ones who get it are the ones on respirators. I know, I've seen, he said, almost triumphantly. Everything was there in his eyes, the pain, the suffering, the loss of belief. That's bullshit, 
Edwards was angry. If you're going to die, I'd let you know, give you a chance to tie things up. You understand? Edwards stormed out of the room, but right there in the hallway, he knew David would die. He knew it for a certainty. The next day, the lab called Edwards and told him David's blood was a bacteria factory. It was eating his body alive. The nurse called right afterwards and said David had a temperature of 106 degrees Fahrenheit. A few minutes later, Edwards was at David's side. The patient was incoherent. Dying in the burn unit is not normally dramatic. There's little blood, burns die inside out, down at the cellular level, where the billions of struggling cells just simply give up. It's for the most part a kind of gentle going. Breathing becomes labored and distant. Circulation falls apart. Hearts dilate. Livers and spleens grow to twice their size, lungs gradually filled with fluid, and there is always a period of confusion. Then unconsciousness comes, and the body leisurely gives itself over to waiting death. Suddenly, David went rigid and, arching backwards, collapsed against the bed frame. Edwards grabbed the suction off the wall and, pulling open David's rigid jaw, began sucking out his mouth, trying to clear the blood and vomit out of the airway. The gasping stopped, and there was the more comfortable sound of air moving in and out. David! screamed Edwards. You've got a stress ulcer! We might have to operate to save you! You've got a lot of blood and stuff in your lungs! The noise from inside the lungs was getting louder again. Even with the oxygen, David was having to fight to breathe. Edwards performed a tracheotomy to try and save him, but it was too late. The lungs filled, the blood shut down, darkness clouded David's eyes. He was 20 years old and engaged. He never wrote to his fiance. He never wrote to his family. He died on a hospital table in Asia, far from the tender embrace and love of his family. This is Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and in today's show, I'm telling you about the fate of the wounded. It's a story of modern war medicine. The American Civil War has been called the Middle Ages of American medicine, but for medical doctor Robert Riley, that characterization is mistaken. Huge gains were made in the treatment of wounded soldiers during the Civil War. It's true that germ theory had not yet developed, and as a consequence, many soldiers died from diseases that could have been easily prevented with modern medical techniques. However, the Civil War was a milestone for medical advancements. And since millions of men across the world were saved by the techniques developed during the Civil War, it's appropriate that we start our investigation into the fate of the wounded with this conflict. Dr. Riley highlights the following advances made during the war between the states. One, the use of quinine for the prevention of malaria. Two, use of quarantine, which virtually eliminated yellow fever. Three, successful treatment of hospital gangrene with bromine and isolation. Four, development of an ambulance system for evacuation of the wounded. This last one is hugely important. The rational withdrawal of wounded from a battlefield into a hospital was a major advancement for all modern militaries all over the world. It was the Confederate and Union forces who created the seeds of the modern systems that are ubiquitous and saving lives all over the world today. Number five, use of trains and boats to transport patients. Six, establishment of large general hospitals and the creation of special hospitals for special type of wounds such as burns seven the safe use of anesthetics eight performance of rudimentary 
neurosurgery. Nine, development of techniques for arterial ligation. And ten, performance of the first plastic surgery. It was war, conflict. That led to the medical capacity for millions of rich Americans to receive plastic surgery today. But the American Civil War did not start out with these salutary innovations. They grew from necessity. And the cause of that necessity was the exceedingly brutal nature of modern warfare and the extreme bloodiness of the war itself. Still, all of these advances were primitive. And consequently, many men died who could have been saved. Dr. Riley explains, quote, Soldiers died from two general causes, battlefield injuries and disease. Contributing factors to combat-related deaths were inexperienced surgeons, the lack of coordinated system to get the injured off the battlefield quickly, wound infections since sterile techniques were not yet recognized as important, and battlefield tactics that did not pace with advances in weaponry. Contributing factors to disease-related deaths included poor sanitation in overcrowded camps, the ignoring of sanitation, inadequate pre-enlistment screenings of recruits, poor diet, lack of immunity to childhood diseases, and few specific treatments for disease, end quote. Considering the state of medicine, at the beginning of the war, Union and Confederate medical staff achieved major victories in the treatment of wounded. In the 1860s, medical school lasted just two years. There were no examinations. Students received no clinical experience before graduation. In 1862, there were only six colleges of pharmacy in the United States. Most doctors prescribed, compounded, and dispensed their own medications. Standardization did not exist. In short, this is another world we are talking about. Before the war, the United States had a peacetime army of 16,000 soldiers. There were 113 doctors in the entire army at the start of the war. 24 of these went south, and three were dismissed for disloyalty. At the end of the war, there were over 12,000 doctors in the Union Army and over 3,000 in the Confederate Army. Before the war, the largest military hospital was Fort Leavenworth, which had 40 beds. The only hospital in Washington, D.C. before the war was a two-story, six-room building used to isolate smallpox patients. The inadequacies of the system was glaringly revealed on the battlefield of Manassas, also known as First Bull Run. Dr. Riley explains, quote, Fortunately, at Bull Run, casualty figures were not large compared with future battles. The North had 481 killed, 1,000 wounded, while the South had 387 killed, 1,500 wounded. Despite this, many problems were encountered. There was no military ambulance corps. Ambulances were driven by civilians who fled when the first shots were fired, leaving the wounded to rot in the field. If they left the ambulances behind, healthy soldiers stole them to flee back to Washington, D.C. Not a single wounded soldier returned to Washington, D.C., in an ambulance. Tragically, wounded soldiers remained on the battlefield for days, the first two spent in the rain. Incredibly, Surgeon General Finley did not order medical supplies until after the battle was over, end quote. As the war evolved, professionally trained stretcher bearers became part of the medical corps. At the Battle of Antietam, Union field hospitals were in operation, and as the war went on, these were consolidated. Large general hospitals were established by September of 1862. These were in large cities, and soldiers were transported there by train and ship. At the end of the war, there were about 400 hospitals with about 
400,000 beds. There are 2 million admissions to these hospitals with an overall mortality rate of 8%. In the south, the largest general hospital, Chimborazo, was in Richmond, Virginia. It was built out of tobacco crates on 40 acres. The number of wounded served was as high as 4,000. The Confederates treated about 76,000 patients there with a 9% mortality rate. Three of every four surgical procedures performed during the war were amputations. Each amputation took about 2 to 10 minutes to complete. There were 175,000 extremity wounds to Union soldiers, and about 30,000 of these underwent amputation with a 26.3% mortality rate. The further from the torso the amputation was carried out, the greater the rates of survival. Hospital gangrene was a peculiar type of necrotizing fasciitis that was first seen in the large general hospitals. Necrotizing fasciitis is a severe bacterial infection of the fascia, the tissues that line and separate your muscles. The disease causes extensive tissue death. Necrotizing fasciitis can be caused by several different types of bacteria. It was one of the largest killers of Civil War soldiers, killing 45% of those who contracted it. The rapid spread and destruction of tissue occurs because of substances produced by the bacteria. Now, during the entire war, twice as many soldiers died from disease as opposed to combat, but this was a great improvement over the rates experienced during the Mexican-American War when about eight deaths were caused by disease for every one combat casualty. Now, I just provided an admittedly broad outline of the development of modern battlefield medicine. But what did it look like? What did it feel like for the people who lived through it? Put in one sentence, it looked like a butcher's shop. A modern historian describes the wounded at the Battle of First Bull Run, quote, The wounded lay where they fell. Many were unconscious of the fact that, in the heat, flies had laid their eggs in their wounds. The same thing happened to others, including one North Carolina man who was wounded in the head. A few days later, his head was infested with maggots, and he could only cry out in pain and delirium, It's, it's worse! It's worse! Over and over again, he rang out. For five days, he lived a hellish torment before the larvae literally consumed his brain. Over time, the wounded were transported, a bumping, rocking nightmare in and of itself, and then unceremoniously unloaded at every village with a train stop. The stations were overflowing with them. All night, you heard their terrible weepings. Ira Rutkow picks up the story, quote, when William Keene, an assistant surgeon for the 1st Massachusetts Infantry, walked into Sudley Church, he was startled by what he saw. The small house of worship, located in the northern fringe of the Bull Run battlefield, had been transformed into a field hospital for Union troops. This makeshift facility was overflowing with the wounded and dying. The church's pews were piled outside, and the building's floor was covered with hay and blankets for emergency bedding. Buckets of dirty water, wooden boxes with surgical instruments, and dressings were strewn about. The operating table, little more than a few boards laid on crates, stood in front of the pulpit. A bloodied communion stand served as a resting spot for the weary. 
Both inside and outside the hospital, medical activity was frenetic and groans filled the air. The physicians, aided by a number of local women, went about the messy work of cutting. Amputations were performed in full view of the assembled, with blood splattering those too near, including the next victim of the surgeon's scalpel. Keen, assisting at an amputation of a shoulder, quickly realized that the operating surgeon had little knowledge of the anatomy of the upper arm. To keep the soldier from bleeding to death... Keene had to tell the surgeon where to cut and sew. And when Keene was ordered to retreat to Washington, it became obvious to all that no retreat strategy or arm protection had been arranged for the field hospital's wounded. By early evening, with Confederate forces swarming over the church grounds, the 300 Union injured faced a very uncertain future, end quote. Meanwhile, a few miles away at a town called Centerville, another large grouping of Union wounded gathered. Here's how one eyewitness remembered the scene, quote, there were hundreds of wounded men lying upon every seat, between the seats and on the floor. They were so packed together, I was in constant danger of treading upon them. Sometimes it was impossible to avoid doing so, end quote. The Confederates were equally hard-pressed to provide for their own wounded, let alone the thousands of wounded the Federals left behind. One eyewitness wrote this, from what I could gather the whole country. From Manassas Junction to Richmond in one direction and to Lynchburg in the other was one vast hospital filled to the brim with the sick and the wounded and the dying of our victorious armies, End quote. Scattered throughout churches, hotels, private dwellings, and public halls were the wounded and sick. In the town of Charlottesville alone, there were more than 1,200 cases of malarial fever. The sick reeked from lack of personal hygiene, lice-infested hair, diarrhea, and gangrenous wounds pouring out malodorous pus in huge vats, an inversion of Proverbs 3.10. Honor the Lord and your vats will flow out with new wine. Here, where two giant armies honored gory death, the only thing flowing was gangrenous pus. Shelby Foote writes about the dangers of lying in the open air after combat. Quote, the fate of the wounded that winter was terrible. After one battle, rain and snow began to fall, tumbling the thermometer to 20 degrees below zero. Some among the wounded froze to death, locked in rigid agony beneath the soft down sift of snow. Witnesses later said you could see the angel of death imprinted in their eyes. End quote. Perhaps the worst agony for the wounded was transportation. There was no highway system, and especially in the South, transportation often involved wagons, ferries, and rail, a constant reloading, shaking, and bumping that made men literally bite through their lips in pain. Most of you will never know pain like this because of drugs like morphine, but these men drink the full, bitter cup of pain for their people. Frank Freeman explains what the retreat from Gettysburg was like for the Confederate wounded, quote, Late on July 3rd, 1863, Robert E. Lee concluded that the Army of Northern Virginia would have to retreat from Gettysburg. One cavalry brigade had not been engaged with the enemy during the vicious fighting of the past three days. Lee ordered that brigade to load all the Confederate wounded onto wagons and begin an immediate retreat. The Army of Northern Virginia would follow the next day. The cavalry troops seized every wagon and cart from the surrounding countryside. They lined these vehicles up along the road to Cashtown until they stretched out for over 17 miles. Some of the more seriously wounded Confederates stayed behind with a few Confederate doctors. One was Simon Baruch. 
Most of the injured were loaded into the wagons in great haste. Some of the soldiers who had been wounded during Pickett's charge had not even had their wounds dressed. As the retreat began, the column was rocked by crashing thunder and lightning. A downpour drenched the wounded. It seemed to the men as though the very windows of heaven had opened. The noise of thunder and moaning drowned out all attempts by officers to issue commands. The teamsters could not control the frightened horses and mules. The unsprung wagons bounced along the muddy and rutted road, torturing the wounded passengers. The train of wagons limped along in a madhouse of confusion and misery over the sound of the rain the thunder, the creaking of wagons, and the bleeding of the terrified animals. The screams of the wounded cut into the heart. Some prayed aloud, others swore incessantly. These phrases were riveted upon the minds of the accompanying troopers. Stop one minute and take me out and leave me to die on the roadside. Please have mercy and take me out. Oh God, why can't I die? God, let me die. My God, have mercy on me and kill me. My poor wife, my dear children, what will become of you? And as the terrible retreat passed through the hamlet of Fairfield, Pennsylvania, local residents came out of their houses to watch the groaning caravan of pain. Young boys pushed sticks through the wagon wheels, ripping out the spokes. The Confederate commander ordered that the next boy who destroyed a wagon would be hung. Some wagons were discarded. Their loads of wounded soldiers were left behind in the Fairfield church. The retreat continued without rest. The commander feared enemy pursuit, and he had to clear the road for the rest of the army. Many of the wounded in the wagons had been without food for 36 hours, he said. Their torn and bloody clothing, matted and hardened, was rasping the tender inflamed and still oozing wounds. An officer later summarized this terrible retreat of the maimed. During this one night I realized more of the horrors of war than I had in all the two preceding years. The wagon loads of wounded soldiers were hauled overland to Williamsport, Maryland, where the Confederates organized a desperate defense against the attack of Federal cavalry. The wounded were ferried across the Potomac on rafts and carried to Winchester, Virginia, where a support hospital had been set up. The huge number of wounded were treated as best as possible, then transported yet again by wagon to the railhead, a circus of death, where they were carried in boxcars to Gordonsville. There, they were distributed throughout the Virginia hospital system. Every stop on this endless anabasis left hastily shallow graves in its wake. Many would never know where their loved ones were buried. The men who survived would never be the same. They paid the ultimate sacrifice. End quote. Between the American Civil War and World War I, there were few medical advances in military medicine. Richard Gabriel explains, quote, The wars that occurred in the early part of the 20th century, the Spanish-American War, the Boer War, and the Russo-Japanese War, experienced the same familiar failures that had reduced military medicine's effectiveness for a hundred years. Most of these failures can be attributed to the unwillingness of armies to take military medicine seriously as a means for salvaging manpower, end quote. Many armies literally thought of their men as little more than cannon fodder. But all of this changed with the onset of World War I. 
World War I was the bloodiest war in the history of the world before the Second World War. 60 million men were mobilized. 7 million of them died. A further 19 million were wounded. It also represented the first flourishing of modern battlefield medicine. A number of advances were made during these four years of war, but to list them all would simply bore you. To put things succinctly, battlefield medicine began to resemble what it is today. There was widespread blood transfusions, bacteriology labs, x-rays, syringes, sterile environments, a proper transportation network linking field aid stations to established medical hospitals. It was primitive compared to our systems today, but it resembled them nonetheless. But none of this was established at the start of the war. Debridement. The deliberate removal of contamination before wounds are closed was severely limited. Consequently, gangrene and putrefying infections were as common as lies in a high school during the first year of the war. In 1915, wound mortality was around 28%, but after 1915, the painful but essential process of debridement was carried out with regularity. Roger Sadia and Moshe Sheen in their excellent review of the medical history of debridement, defined the process as, quote, the incision of a cavity for the purpose of draining an infected collection or for mobilizing an organ. It is the removal of non-viable tissue. Debridement means laying the wound open. Excision is the removal of all foreign objects and contaminants, especially all organic matter from the wound. Debridement also means removing all non-viable tissue, leaving live and healthy muscle surface in the wound only. End quote. Consequently, with the introduction of debridement, the mortality rate plummeted. By 1917, it was 8%. These medical doctors and their new procedures and inventions saved millions of lives. And some of you are alive today because of their inventions. But how many of you are thankful for it? Many of you never even knew about this stuff until I told you about it. These standardized practices and treatments have saved innumerable civilians around the world. And we should remember men like Dr. J. Roussel, who created the first successful battlefield blood transfusion during the Franco-Prussian War. He drew upon the work of James Aveling, who invented a rubber bulge syringe to pump blood more quickly from the donor to the recipient. The French, Austrian, Belgian, and Russian armies adopted Roussel's transfusion apparatus, and it spread throughout the world from there. If you ever receive blood, the reason it doesn't kill you is because Carl Landsteiner figured out how to classify blood in major types and therefore ensure the types were matched when they were transfused, thereby saving countless lives. I'm thankful for Carl Landsteiner. Albert Huston used sodium citrite to prevent blood coagulation and thereby ensure that blood could be safely stored. I'm thankful for Albert. I could list many more men who invented many more things. If the wars of the West were a blight on the peoples of the world, here's the great gift of the West. Countless saved across the world who just 50 years before would have died. And how many people has the Ford motor car saved because of sheer timeliness? And when you disparage the West, I wonder if you would have the guts to turn your back on her gifts too. Many of the men who have publicly hated the West were the first to run to her hospitals in the time of their own sickness. You can read Martin Meredith's The Fate of Africa for a list of hostile dictators who tripped over themselves to get medical treatment in the West when their bodies felt the bitter pangs of the fruits of sin. 
Tetanus has killed hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people since mankind first emerged from dust. But in World War I, the war against tetanus was won. Historian Richard Gabriel explains how, quote, Tetanus had a mortality rate of 89 to 95% in the Civil War and shortly before World War I, when the first anti-tetanus vaccines were available, the mortality rate was still between 40 and 80%. In 1914, 32% of British wounded contracted tetanus. With the introduction of new vaccines and the practice of giving a wounded man a tetanus shot as soon as possible, the rate of tetanus infection dropped to 0.1% by the war's end, end quote. The Second World War saw the continuation of the process established in World War I. For example, British medical observers noted the wounded often had to traverse more than 100 miles before they received adequate medical treatment. Consequently, authorities established forward aid stations called advanced surgical centers, which operated in the actual combat zone. This saved tens of thousands of lives and has now been copied by all modern militaries around the world. In addition, some specialist units began to train medical personnel who actually accompanied units into battle. These specially trained men were able to provide first aid in a matter of minutes. Again, countless lives were saved. Antibiotics saved innumerable men, too. Penicillin was developed by Alexander Fleming in 1928 and gradually perfected by Howard Florey and Ernst Chain in the early 1940s. These men's work directly led to the production of the most effective antibacterial wound agent that physicians have ever known. The discovery in 1943 that large quantities of the drug could be made in cornstarch resulted in mass production and in the Allied Army's widespread use of the drug in 1944. All of us, the world over, owe these men a debt. Some of our children will live because of their work. Some of us are alive today because of what they did. They gave the world a blessing we should never take for granted. Since World War II, practices and procedures have continued to advance based off the earlier models we've just discussed. But there is a new question arising from the widespread adoption of formal medical treatment in warfare. How do you cope with the devastation of modern warfare when you are the medical staff themselves? There are two points about this question. First, some people don't cope. They break down. Second, most medical personnel practice de personalization of the patients they work on. It's a survival mechanism, and it's effective for many hospital staff and soldiers. In 1914, George Wunderl noted that the most effective German soldiers, the veterans, depersonalized the enemy. He wrote, quote, Every single soldier is the military leader's tool and has to contribute his share with all his strength to realize the commander's will. Breaking the enemy's resistance is the purpose of that will. The most perfect way of achieving this goal is to exterminate the enemy's life, and here lies the soldier's bloody duty. But the basically peaceful man will always have a bad feeling about the mass destruction of the lives of others. He is expected to kill people who never did him any harm. People he never got to know. People who might be hope and support for their families. One must not think of all this declare the older soldiers in particular, who have already taken part in combat. Otherwise, you would not be able to commit a single murder. 
This does not really apply to long-distance fighting. To aim at targets that are far away is not a personal matter, so to speak. One does not see the targeted man falling. One does not hear his cry of pain and does not become aware of his death throes, end quote. So the veteran soldiers depersonalize their enemy. Lieutenant Dave Grossman noted the same habit in his excellent book on killing. It's easier to kill people who are far away from you, but the closer you are to them, the harder it is to kill them. Stephanie Murphy, a surgical technologist during the Iraq War, also commented that she deliberately tried to depersonalize her patients using curtains and blocking the memory of their dismembered bodies from her mind. She really spoke about her work in a forward aid station. She went in, she worked on a small piece of a broken body, and forgot about it when she walked out the door. This is how she described her coping strategy, quote, How do my job affect me? Well, in surgery, there's always a sheet up. So you don't have to connect with that person face to face. You can focus on the injury. And that's really what you need to do when you're over there. Because if you don't focus on the injury, you're going to drive yourself crazy. I can't do anything about that person right now. I can only help the doctor. What does the doctor need? What does he need me to do? And I didn't want to know too much about them if they passed away. Because then I think it makes it more personal. And distancing from that was the way I kept myself sane. For instance, I could see somebody that I helped remove their arm and I wouldn't even recognize the person. But some people couldn't take it. We had one nurse and she just broke down. Post-traumatic stress, they called it. They had to take her out of the theater. She was brand new and she struggled when she was there. She would cry over every patient. She would come to me and say, I don't understand how you just sit there. How are you not crying? How are you not upset? She really struggled when we had kids. The kids really bothered her. She probably wasn't even there a year, end quote. But some people can't distance themselves from the wounded. They already know them. These are the corpsmen. Medical assistants who serve in the Navy. Some of these corpsmen serve with the Marines and share many of the hardships with the Marines they serve. They eat with the frontline troops, they fight with the Marines, and so they know the men they are working with intimately. Here's how Dr. Richard Jadding describes the effect of casualties on the corpsmen. Quote, the corpsmen were no older than the Marines we were treating, 18, 19, maybe 23 years old at the most. And they were seeing things that would floor an experienced trauma surgeon, I can tell you. And the corpsmen were often treating people they knew well, friends they had trained with for years in some cases, an emotional punch that civilian medical personnel rarely have to face. Sometimes when wounded Marines would be carried in and the corpsmen wouldn't even recognize them, they were coming in so messed up, covered in blood and gunk and mud. Then they'd see the man's name on his dog tags and you could see the pain in their eyes as the realization sank in. These kids, my corpsmen, they handled it with real courage, guts, and professionalism. But those guys outplayed their potential to the extreme. They took on incredible challenges, man. They saved a lot of lives, and in the heat of battle, they remained deeply compassionate. If it would help, they would even hold a guy's hand. We'd certainly make fun of them for that afterwards, but out there, they did whatever they could to think of, to provide comfort, and they were afraid to do it. They didn't even think twice. Weeks had passed, with few casualties, and we were getting cocky. Then the inevitable happened. We were getting ready in the early hours of November 13th when we heard a truck pull up in front of the hospital, and the corpsman, Milton Jones, yelled out, He's not breathing! I need help! I ran outside of the vehicle that had pulled up. I thought I had seen it all by this point, but seeing Corporal Jacob Nospler stopped me cold. His lower face, his entire lower maxillary apparatus, his jaw, his tongue, his teeth, was gone. His windpipe was just there, exposed to the night air, making eerie sounds. 
Nospler, a squad leader from 1st Platoon, had been fighting on his feet for nearly four days straight. He fought hard and fought bravely, so it, it must have come as a relief when, at about 2 a.m. on the 13th, he received an order to enter a small house and hunker down for a few hours before a planned daylight assault on a nearby mosque. The Marines moved in, clearing rooms on the ground floor with grenades before moving for the stairs. Nospler was first up as squad leader. He could have sent one of his Marines in, but he went himself, and he took an insurgent grenade full in the face. Another two grenades bounced down the stairs past Nospler and exploded, sending shrapnel into six other Marines, causing mostly minor injuries. Not so the corporal. The explosion and shrapnel had sheared his face away, from his left cheekbone to the lower right-hand side of his jaw. He stumbled out of the building on his own power and then collapsed. Nospler was unconscious when he got to us and suffocating on his own secretions. We got him into the aid station and tried to get his airway opened up. In a hospital, you would use a suction hose to clear the mucus and fluid from the opening of the trachea. Fortunately, I had brought some turkey basters, medical equipment, but they looked just like turkey basters, and was able to get Nospler's windpipe unplugged. I was getting ready to insert an airway tube down his throat when he gasped. A big rush of air in, and all of a sudden, he's completely alert. Quick decision. Do I intubate now or not? It would be the simplest way to keep his airway open, but what kind of unimaginable pain and discomfort would he experience? Hard plastic pushing into his shredded trachea. Nospler couldn't talk, of course, but he was crying or trying to scream maybe. I don't know. We're going to ride back together to the ambulance exchange point, I told him. If I went with him, I thought there was a better chance that he'd make it there alive. We got Corporal Nosler bandaged as well as we could, gave him a good dose of morphine to try to dent the pain a little, and I brought the rapid sequence intubation kit in case I had to use it. We rode in, Specialist Knight and I, with Corporal Nosler sitting between us on a stretcher. All I did was hold his head in the dim red light of the track, keeping him upright so the fluids he was leaking could drain. He kept trying to touch the bottom of his face, where it had used to be, and I had to hold his hands back. I actually held his hand kept talking to him, kept sticking him with the morphine as much as he could tolerate, though I didn't know how much it helped. He knew something was wrong, but he didn't know what, and he couldn't talk, and he couldn't ask. It was a 30-minute ride, and I'll never forget it. Nospler hit Camp Fallujah, and the surgical company immediately flew him up to Baghdad. He wasn't there long before he was flown to Germany, still alive, but facing years, if not a lifetime, of excruciating recovery. If you're a doctor in a war zone, you've never seen it all. End quote. But what happens when the medical staff themselves come under fire, when everyone's life, including the physicians, is at risk? This is exactly what happened to Dr. Michiko Hachia. On August 6, 1945, the day started like any other. The morning was still calm and beautiful. The birds were singing. And as he lounged about the house in his underwear and a t-shirt singing zippity Doodah," Hachia was thankful for such a peaceful day. He had worked all night at the hospital and he could use a rest. Suddenly there was a bright flash and then another. As if a million flash bulbs on a million cameras had suddenly taken a picture all at once. The whole world a dazzling with light blinding. Michiko described the event like this, quote, The shadows disappeared. The view where a moment before all had been so bright and sunny was now dark and hazy. Through swirling dust I could barely discern a wooden column that had supported one corner of my house. It was leaning crazily and the roof sagged dangerously. 
Moving instinctively, I tried to escape, but rubble and fallen timbers barred my way. By picking my way cautiously, I managed to reach my garden. A profound weakness overcame me, so I stopped to regain my strength. To my surprise, I discovered that I was completely naked. The shock wave, which I had barely noticed, had blown my clothes off my body. I hadn't even registered what had happened. All over the right side of my body I was cut and bleeding. A large splinter was protruding from a mangled wound in my thigh, and something warm trickled into my mouth. My cheek was torn. I discovered, as I felt it gingerly, with the lower lip laid wide open. Embedded in my neck was a sizable fragment of glass, which I matter-of-factly dislodged, and with the detachment of one stunned and shocked, I studied it and my blood-stained hand. But where was my wife? Suddenly, thoroughly alarmed, I began to yell for her. Yakasan! Yakasan! Where are you? Blood began to spurt. Had my artery been cut? Would I bleed to death? Frightened and irrational, I called out again. It's a 500-ton bomb! Yakasan, where are you? A 500-ton bomb has fallen! Yakasan, Pale and frightened, her clothes torn and bloodstained emerged from the ruins of our house, holding her elbow. Seeing her, I was reassured. My own panic assuaged, I tried to reassure her. We'll be all right, I exclaimed. Only let's get out of here as fast as we can. She nodded, and I motioned for her to follow me. We went to the hospital. The shortest path to the street lay through the house next door, so through the house we went running, stumbling, falling, and then running again, until in headlong flight we tripped over something and fell sprawling into the street. Getting to my feet, I discovered that I had tripped over a man's decapitated head. "'Excuse me, sir! Excuse me, please!' I cried hysterically. There was no answer. The head had belonged to a young officer whose body was crushed beneath a massive gate. We stood in the street, uncertain and afraid, until a house across from us began to sway and then, with a rending motion, fell almost at our feet, as if it was worshipping us. Our own house began to sway, and in a minute it too collapsed in a cloud of dust. Other buildings caved in or collapsed around us. Fire sprang up and, whipped by a vicious wind, began to spread. We pressed on to the hospital, joining the bedraggled, shuffling horde, who had the same idea. I was still stark naked, wandering the streets, my dignity lost with my safety. Yakoson looked into my face for a moment, and then, without saying a word, turned away and began running towards the hospital. Once she looked back and waved, and in a moment she was swallowed up in the gloom. It was quite dark now, and with my wife gone, a feeling of dreadful loneliness came over me. I must have gone out of my mind lying there in the road because the next thing I recall was discovering that the clot on my thigh had been dislodged and blood was again spurting from the wound. I pressed my hand to the bleeding area, and after a while the bleeding stopped and I felt better. But could I go on? I tried. It was all a nightmare, my wounds, the darkness, the road ahead. The world literally turned into a real, tangible nightmare, one that you could feel and smell and touch. My movements were ever so slow, only my mind was running at top speed. At last, I reached the gates of the hospital where I knew the faces, where I belonged. My friends would help me, and they did not disappoint. I was loaded onto a stretcher. The rooms and corridors were crowded with people, many of whom I recognized as neighbors. To me, it seemed that the whole community was there. My friends passed me through an open window into a janitor's room, recently converted to an emergency first aid station. 
The room was a shambles. The fallen plaster, broken furniture and debris littered the floor. The walls were cracked, and a heavy steel window frame was twisted and almost wrenched from its seating. What a place to dress the wounds of the injured. What a place to hear the screams of the dying. My own personal nurse, a woman I had known for years, materialized in front of my pain and adrenaline-addled eyes. She finished her examination, and in a moment it felt as if my chest was on fire. She had begun to paint my wounds with iodine, and no amount of entreaty would make her stop. With no alternative but to endure the iodine, I tried to divert myself by looking out the window. As I looked up, I witnessed a sight which made me forget my smarting wounds. Smoke was pouring out of the sunroom windows. The hospital was on fire. Fire! I shouted. Fire! The hospital's on fire! My friends looked up. It was true. The hospital was burning. The alarm was given, and from all sides, people took up the cry. Our little world was now in pandemonium. The order was given to evacuate the hospital, and I was placed under a cherry tree in the open. No one talked and the ominous silence was relieved only by a subdued rustle among so many people, restless, in pain, anxious and afraid, waiting for something else to happen. One thought hell might open up from beneath us and take us under. The sky filled with black smoke and glowing sparks. Flames rose and the heat set currents of air in motion. You could actually see the air move around you, like a semi-visible ghosts shimmering and sliding in front of you. Updrafts became so violent that sheets of zinc roofing were hurled aloft and released, humming and twirling in erratic flight like flaming birds. Pieces of flaming wood soared and fell, and while I was trying to beat out the flames, a hot ember seared my ankle. It was all I could do to keep from being burned alive out there. The building I had just been in started to burn, and window after window became a square of flame, until the whole structure was converted into a crackling, hissing inferno. Scorching winds howled around us, whipping dust and ashes into our eyes and up our noses. Our mouths became dry, our throats raw and sore from the biting smoke pulled into our lungs. Coughing was uncontrollable. We would have moved back, but a group of wooden barracks behind us caught fire and began to burn like tinder. When we had awoke that morning, we had been postal workers and police officers, doctors and supervisors. Now we were all trapped animals, our wide, wet eyes taking in the preternatural wrath destroying our city around us like gentle rabbits caught in a forest that's being wildly cleared by heavy machinery. The heat finally became too intense to endure, and we were left no choice but to abandon the garden. Those who could fled, those who could not perish where they lay. Had it not been for my devoted friends, I too would have died, but again they came to the rescue and carried my stretcher to the main gate. I was safe, and then I found my wife too. Still the flames spread closer, and as they came closer, the heat became more intense, and if someone in our group had not had the presence of mind to drench us with water from a fire hose, I doubt if any one of us would have survived. I blacked out. When I woke up, I was in an open area. My friends had saved me again but at a huge cost to my body. I would never be the same, but I would live because of them, because of their sacrifice. Finally, they dragged me to another hospital that was still functioning. In the space of one night, patients had become packed like rice and sushi into every nook and cranny of the hospital. The majority were badly burned, a few severely injured, all were critically ill. Many had been near the heart of the city and in their efforts to flee managed to get to the hospital because this building 
standing alone, where all else was destroyed, represented shelter and a place of refuge, and so they came as an avalanche and overran the hospital. There was no friend or relative to minister to their needs, no one to prepare their food, everything was in disorder. And to make matters worse was the vomiting and diarrhea. Patients who could not walk urinated and defecated where they lay. Those who could walk would feel their way to the exit and relieve themselves there. Persons entering or leaving the hospital could not avoid stepping in the filth so closely was it spread. The front entrance became covered with feces overnight, and nothing could be done for there was no bedpans and, even if there had been, no one to carry them to the patients. Disposing of the dead was a minor problem, but to clean the rooms and corridors of the urine, feces, and vomit was impossible. The stench crawled into your nose and leached into your mind. Even now, when I think about it years later, I can still smell the horrible, physically hot stench. The people who were burned suffered most because, as their skin peeled away, glistening raw wounds were exposed to the heat and filth. This was the environment patients had to live in. It made one's hair stand on end, but there was no way to help the situation. I remember there were no shutters or curtains in my room, or windows for that matter. The groans of patients assaulted my ears. Everything was in turmoil. Instruments, window frames, and debris littered the floor. The walls and ceilings were scarred and picked, as though someone had sprinkled sesame seeds over their surfaces. It was in this wretched scene that my old friend, Dr. Kasuba, closed over forty of my wounds. I look at them sometimes in the mirror, my wounds. I am a Frankenstein monster. I had thought I would live the quiet life of a civilian doctor, but my body is a puzzle stitched together with needles. I went through war, literally dragged by my wife and friends. In the modern world, there are no civilians. End quote. Dr. Hachia had just survived the first atomic bomb attack on a human population. He was one of the few to survive Hiroshima. But I know a lot of you are thinking, but that's the atomic bomb, Wolf. That's not really relevant for my life. Fair enough. The AK-47 has killed exponentially more people than the atomic bomb. Let's talk about shootings. In America, we've got plenty of those. Chicago in 2019, experienced 2,139 shootings, which is almost six shootings a day. 490 people were murdered in Chicago during the same year. Being shot is something that can happen to any of us, especially in many parts, but not all, I admit, of the United States. In their book, War Surgery in Afghanistan and Iraq, military surgeons working for the Borden Institute, which is the Army Medical Center, provided detailed case studies of numerous gunshot victims. There are graphic photos and detailed analysis of burn victims, head injuries, amputations, body dismemberment, and high-velocity bullet penetrations. I've made a video guide and posted it to the website at thebattlecast.com, and I recommend you all take a look and see the real wages of warfare. Here, in high-definition images, are the bloody ravages of all modern wars. This is what the shattered bodies of Stalingrad and Gettysburg really looked like. Now, let me tell you about one interpreter who took a bullet in his elbow. There are pictures of his mangled body, and his elbow was literally blown away. It looks like you took an ice cream spoon and scooped a hole out of the men's elbow and then covered it in bright red cherry syrup. A human limb turned into a wet, melting dessert. And this is one of the least horrible pictures in the entire medical textbook I'm describing. The book only gets worse from there. 
And this is what war has done to people for thousands of years. In the Viking saga, Egil's saga, the poet narrates the time a man was burned alive thousands of years ago. The metal band Amana Marth made a song about it. The burn victims would look just like the burn victims I'm describing today. And I want anyone who is thinking about committing violence, anyone's filled with hate, anyone who wants to shoot up a mosque or a church, I beg you to go to my website and view this book and video for yourself. Anyone thinking of shooting a rival gang member or considering serving in the armed forces, this is what can happen to you and your family if you carelessly run off to war. Don't mistake me. There is a time for war, but all of us need to know precisely what it means, especially in a real democracy. Friend, I'm giving you the ability to finally see the real cost of war in a way you've never seen it before. It's free, and it's on the website, thebattlecast.com. Now let me describe a man who had his face turned inside out. The first thing you see is three teeth thrusting out of a sponge-like, basketball-sized red globe. You look closer. There are sticks, like crosses on top of Mount Golgotha, sticking out of the globe. You read the caption, It is a man's face, a human, who is still alive like something out of the film Hellraiser, but here before your very eyes, and you Americans listening to this sent that soldier to Iraq. You didn't write your congressman or senator. You sat back and let him go, and now his head is a volleyball of morbidity. You look at the next picture. It is a human hand with the skin blown away. You see all the small bones and muscular ligaments, pinkish white like old hamburger meat, sticking to an undercooked T-bone. The hand's skeletal system reminds you of the scene in Terminator 2 when Arnold rips his hand off to see the robotic skeletal arm moving in the fluorescent light. You're seeing something you were never meant to see, and this is what the wounded man's hand looks like. And this book is over 500 pages long, a catalog of pain, a detailed curation of the evils of war. All these wounds threaten to breed necrotizing fasciitis. What is necrotizing fasciitis? It's a severe soft tissue infection that's caused by bacteria, like in strep throat, and is marked by death of the tissues under the skin and by painful red swollen skin over the affected areas. I'll let the medical doctors at the Borden Institute pull back the wool from your eyes. This is the man behind the curtain of every war film you've ever seen, the nitty-gritty, sans glamour, sans music, sans everything. Here's how the fifth edition of Emergency War Surgery describes one necrotizing patient, quote, A middle-aged male presented with two high-velocity gunshot wounds. The first bullet penetrated the left lateral abdomen, injuring the descending colon and spleen. The second bullet penetrated the left lateral thigh and also traveled upward, passing the pelvis and rectum. The patient was taken immediately to the operating room for exploratory surgery. He required a colostomy and splenectomy. There was no injury of the rectum. The rectum was left in situ, with the proximal stump stapled off at the pelvic brim. The extra peritoneal rectum sustained a substantial injury, which was managed with distal washout and posterior drainage. By post-operative day five, he developed persistent high fever and a spreading abnormal redness on his back, which is often indicative of invasive infection. The patient was returned to the operating room. The bullet had transected the pelvis and rectum, lodged deep in his back, contaminated the soft tissue planes, and produced an aggressive necrotizing fasciitis. All dead and threatened muscle and fascia 
were surgically removed. An initial incision revealed the dead gray-black fascia on his back. This was also surgically removed, end quote. I want to interject here. This guy received two gunshot wounds and has now suffered a bacterial infection coupled with an extreme fever. He's getting parts of his skin and organs cut out. He's being stapled together. It sounds like Dr. Frankenstein leading a lesson in a kindergarten classroom, arts and crafts of death. Now, I want to point out this is what gunshot and arrow wounds have done for thousands of years. What I'm talking to you about today is the fate of the wounded at Agincourt, at Normandy, and at Antietam. The doctors pick up the story of the wounded, quote, Eventually, most of the fascia of the posterior thorax, the left gluteus, and the left lateral thigh were cut away. The patient's hospital treatment was long and complicated by bacterial sepsis and multiple organ system failure. He eventually recovered. The large, open wound was treated as a full-thickness burn with aggressively daily debridement, washing with specialized solution and coverage with burn creams. Once the wound no longer had a septic appearance and had begun to granulate, the area was covered with skin grafts in multiple stages, end quote. One hundred years ago, this guy would be dead, and what I just described was the death of one of your ancestors, almost assuredly. Maybe they didn't get it from a sword. Maybe they were working with an axe or a flint knife and accidentally fell on it. The necrotizing fasciitis took over from there. Almost all of us have an ancestor who died from this. This is why you need to be thankful for modern medicine. I know some of you are sitting in run-down apartments drinking cheap high-gravity beer lonely, and you think this world sucks. I've been there with you. I've sat in those same seedy apartments, and I felt that same pang of loneliness. But there is something to be thankful for, and that's medical advancement. And you guys who turn loneliness into hate, there's happiness out there for you, too. I mean it. I'm going to tell you a secret. Carl Schmidt famously said protection leads to obligation, but I want you to know that when you are lonely, sometimes kindness leads to obligation. You give up something of yourself to connect with someone else. I do this every day in my marriage. I expect most of us do. You have to. There's times I'd rather sit on my ass and drink beer rather than throw a football with my kids after I've worked 50 hours in a week, but I get off my ass and I throw that ball. You have to do that to connect with people. Be the change you want to see. If you're wondering why I told you this, it's because you need to hear it and no one else is willing to tell you. I'm talking to you, incel. Here's a little known fact. In modern warfare, you're about three times more likely to be wounded by an improvised explosive device than you are a bullet. This is an inversion of wounds received during Vietnam where soldiers receive more bullet wounds than explosive wounds. Now I ask you, what does a booby trap explosion do to the human body? It's not clean. There's fire, there's jagged steel flying everywhere, a metal web of death supersonically flying through the air and sky at your face. Again, the doctors at the Borden Institute paint the dismal picture, quote, A 22-year-old male sustained a fragment wound to the left buttock from an improvised explosive device. The entrance wound measured four centimeters. Communication with the patient was limited due to a language barrier. However, the patient complained of numbness to the lateral side of his left foot. Physical examination revealed an intact motor examination, but decreased pinprick sensation at lower levels. No fractures were identified. The patient was taken to the operating room. 
a post-lateral approach to the hip was used to explore the sciatic nerve, the largest nerve in the body. The sciatic nerve was partially lacerated. A three-centimeter fragment was removed from the superficial surface of the quadratus femoris muscle, and the wound was irrigated. The surgical wound was closed, and the traumatic wound was packed with wet-to-dry dressing soaked with Dakin solution. Gunshot and fragment wounds to the buttocks frequently result in injury to underlying structures, including muscle, bone, and nerves. But a potentially more severe and less treatable injury to the sciatic nerve was noted on physical examination. Never underestimate the damage from blast injury. Usually muscles are shredded and bones severely fragmented. The zone of injury is always larger than the obvious wound tract and can be accompanied by thermal injury to the skin and subcutaneous tissues, end quote. The accompanying pictures of this case shows a small wound about the size of a working man's callous thumb on the top of the patient's left butt cheek. That doesn't seem so bad, right? Well, wrong. From this small wound, the doctors had to cut open the man's buttock. And I mean cut open. They sliced into it like you were cutting down half a pizza. They made a surgical incision you could fit your fist into. The patient will walk with a limp for the rest of his life. His nerves will never work right again. And this is all from a shell fragment the size of your thumb wounding a butt cheek. How much more would the same wound affect you if you took it in the forehead or in your genitals? I planned this episode for months. It was one I often gave up on. The pictures and the wounds were literally the most ghastly thing I've ever seen, and I've seen the most exotic, gore-bathed documentaries of Asia and underground films like The Killing of America. I've gone on macabre tours of impossible-to-find, gore-drenched documentary films in the basements of university libraries across the southeast but nothing compared to the detailed descriptions and photographs I've seen making this episode, and I'm not just saying that. I never could figure out how I would end this show, so I'll end it with a plea and a description. The plea is for you to either watch the presentation on war wounds I made or read the book for yourself. Both are on the website thebattlecast.com for free. And now the description. This is from Lieutenant Frederick Down's excellent books, The Killing Zone, in the aftermath, quote, The last night of my Vietnam War, we climbed a small sand dune with a flat top. It was a beautiful evening. The moonlight gave the area around us a soft tint. The sound of waves breaking on the beach drifted across to us like the steady pulse of eternal life. I was in excellent spirits when it happened. My foot slipped backwards a fraction of an inch, hitting the trigger mechanism of a mine. I never even heard the explosion. Black powder and dirt flew by me. My eardrums were ripped. My body was flying through the air. I threw my arms in front of me in a reflex motion to balance myself. My eyes registered the horror of a brilliantly white, jagged bone sticking out of the stump of arm above where my left elbow had been. Ragged, bloody flesh surrounded the splintered bone. My mind cursed as utter helplessness and despair overwhelmed me. It had to be a bouncing Betty, a mind that flies up out of the ground after being tripped and explodes waist high. My M16 had been in my right hand. The rifle was shattered. My hand was a mangled, pulped mess. I stared in horror at what remained of my right arm. The flesh had been ripped away, exposing the two bones in my forearm from the wrist to the elbow. The bones looked like white, glistening, narrow rods buried in the raw 
bloody meat thinking, my God, my God, my God. I felt total defeat of my life as I landed on my feet five yards from where the mine had exploded. After landing, I staggered forward two or three steps and then collapsed. My legs would not work. The mine had gone off about six inches from my left hip. From the waist down, my body was mutilated and torn where large chunks of flesh, muscles, blood vessels, and nerves had been ripped away by the hot exploding shrapnel. My buttocks was blown away. The back of my legs were ripped to the bone down to my heels. My body was sending so many pain signals to my brain that it was overloaded like an electrical circuit. It caused me to feel a racing, humming numbness. I lifted my head to view a scene from hell. My pack had absorbed the majority of shrapnel that would have entered my back and spinal cord. It had been blasted to splinters. My belongings were scattered in a wide area around me. An infantryman's soul-tearing cry of MEDIC sounded through the air. It was colder now and hard to see. I was thinking of my grandma and her farm of the woods and fields of Indiana I love so much. If only I could walk them just one more time. Please, God, please let me see them one more time. What a waste. Now I will never get the chance. A familiar sound broke through the haze, a chopper. If I could only stay awake, I might make it to the field hospital. It didn't even seem to take ten minutes. The chopper bumped hard against the landing pad as the pilot brought it in hot. The next thing I knew, I was at the second surgical field hospital. The nurses on both sides started cutting my bloody combat uniform from me. One cut off the other boot. Two doctors... One on each side of my shoulder started working. Needles were stuck into me. I watched as one doctor handed my own left arm to a nurse. Hey, I need that, I mouthed. I need my arm. Hey, what are you doing? Okay, big guy, okay. The doctors kept working. Another doctor held my stump and cut the tourniquet off. Who the hell tied this tourniquet? He remarked to no one in particular. Those doctors were used to putting the human puzzle back together again. Yes, sometimes they lost pieces, but they more or less shaped the puzzle the way it was supposed to go. The doctor put a scalpel next to my stump and cut down it to the flesh to a blood vessel where he cut and tied off. I looked around the room. Men lay on cots, each circled by a team of doctors and nurses. Blood was everywhere. I had never seen so much blood in my life. The first day, the pain was so intense that tears flowed down my cheeks. My body was imprisoning me in pain. I tried to lift my right arm to brush away the tears, and a hot knife of unbearable pain shot up my arm as I started to move it. At the same time, the big terror flooded through my mind, filling me with despair. Some men began to scream, and they would scream until the nurses ran to administer a shot of morphine. The screams would then taper off to a muted, restless moan pain forced my attention to other parts of my body. I realized tubes were running up my nose and a tube was in my growing. My mouth was sandy dry. I swallowed convulsively trying to work up moisture. Nothing. I croaked to a nurse that I wanted a drink. No, Lieutenant. I'm afraid you can't have a drink because you're hurt inside and water may hurt you even more. We'll keep you alive through these tubes. I looked at the tubes and thought, I'm a damn human Christmas tree covered in wires. The nurse gave me a shot and I drifted into a limbo of pain, mingled with terrible thoughts of the future with no arms. The pain shots could not overcome the pain. The pain swept on, taking rest, taking sleep, dominating everything. There would be no restful sleep for months, end quote. Over the next few months, Downs was pieced back together. In the end, he lost his wife, he lost his children, he lost his arm, he lost so much. Still, at the end of his book, he is thankful for his daughter, thankful for the doctors who brought him back from the clutches of death. It's a story 
that never would have happened before World War I. And we should all be thankful for the doctors and the medicine we all take for granted. There's a vapid assumption of entitlement in the West. Friend, you have so much to be thankful for. Be thankful for the antibiotics that save your life, the morphine that numbs your pain, and the medical staff and researchers that make it all possible. So right now, I want to thank the medical staff at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center for rebuilding my wounded brother-in-law. I want to thank the doctors all over America who have served my family. I want to thank all of you who have killed yourself during the coronavirus outbreak. I don't now, and I never will take you for granted. And you were writing another mean-spirited meme on Twitter with tens of thousands of views. And you who put up a video of a girl riding a water slide in a bikini on YouTube and received tens of millions of views. Here I have undone all of you. Your views mean nothing. Your decadent memes mean nothing. Your money you pissed away from the advertisements you received mean nothing. Even if this podcast was never heard except by stones, it would be more of an achievement than the selling of your sister's flesh for views on YouTube or the pithy gif you posted to Twitter that made millions of fools chuckle, but no one think. There is a world out there, my friend. There are orphans who need fathers and mothers. There's pain and broken families. There's drugs, water falling through our streets, and you post flesh on YouTube, and you post pithy memes but I post the saving of human life and my honor is pure and my conscience is clean. The world would be so much better if you were less clever and more humble, if you talked less and worked more. And all you social scientists who claim there is no truth, who constantly build and deconstruct theories and epistemologies, how fast do you run to the objective empiricism of hard sciences when your child is sick or when your own body is sick? Suddenly you understand what objective knowledge is, don't you? And the next time you go to the doctor, remember my words, let them Velcro in your mind. You suddenly knew there was objective truth, and the medical doctor had it. All is vanity and chasing after the wind. And that's it for me. If you liked and appreciated this episode, don't donate to me this month. I didn't make this episode for money. And in all honesty, I wish I could have made it even better. There is something more to life than money. You live in a world saturated with money thinking. It's doing something to you and your family. I've sat in meetings and I've mouthed the platitudes I'm expected to mouth. I've jumped through the hoops for my job, but none of that matters compared to the life-saving work of our medical staff and the men who sacrifice so much for their people. So once again, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. Bye.